Attention passengers, today on Strangers on a Podcast, we go back to 1981 for a trip to New York with a carpenter and a snake. It contains Stevie Wayne, Sam Loomis, and the Black Moses of Soul. Join us, won't you? Welcome to the movie car here at Strangers on a Podcast. I am Mel Crass, the conductor. With me is... I'm Grimweed. Hello, Grimweed. Welcome. Thank you for being here. We're called Strangers on a Podcast because we're two guys who don't know each other and we're talking about movies to see how they bring people together. Are we going to drive each other nuts? Are we going to curse and scream one another out? We know we're not going to stay on topic. No, it's. I think we can pretty much guarantee that's not going to happen. Probably not. Uh, But today we are talking about, all the way from 1981, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Aren't you excited for that, Grimley? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a movie that has Stevie Wayne, Sam Loomis, and the Black Moses of Soul. How can you not be excited about that? It is a it is a fine fine collection of actors who are in it, and all of them get great moments to shine. I think everybody uh, does a great job pulling their weight in the cast, and uh, it stars Kurt Russell, you know, fine actor in his own right. Yeah, and anytime you get Carpenter and Russell together, it's a good time. Yeah, something fun's gonna happen. Everything yep. from Elvis to Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, and the thing. Yep. Fine collaborator, those two. Fine pair of collaborators, even. Yeah. But Escape from New York was released in 1981. It was directed by John Carpenter. It was written by John Carpenter. And who who helped him write it, Grim? Uh, was it Deborah Hill? No. Oh, no. Deborah Hill did the. Um, yeah. Production. He brought Nick Castle in because they wanted some humor. Yeah. Uh, Nick Castle is a friend of Carpenter's who played the shape in the original Halloween. Uh, but it was produced by Deborah Hill, along with Larry Franco, Barry Bernardi, and Jake Eberts. And you always know it's going to be a good movie when it says produced by Deborah Hill in the opening credit. Yeah, they would they work well together. I mean, they have a nice little family of behind the scenes as well as on camera family. So like the, a lot of their sound people and everything were all the same for quite a few movies. Yes, it was a nice little family of uh, people. But uh, sadly, Deborah Hill passed away in 2005 and she is no longer with us. But uh, she left behind a legacy of great films and uh, she was a, an amazing woman producer. Uh, she was given an award for being one of the most powerful women in Hollywood and she went on to say, I would like I I would prefer it if this was award was just called one of the most powerful people in Hollywood and that the woman qualifier wasn't necessary. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Well, but it gets the point across. The music was by John Carpenter and Alan Howarth. Uh, Carpenter and Howarth would go on to collaborate on lots of scores for movies like Prince of Darkness and Christine. Cinematography was by Dean Cundey, who went on to be one of the most respected men in his field with Jurassic Park and Apollo 13 and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and dozens of other just blockbusters. It was edited by a guy named Todd Ramsey, uh, who also edited Carpenter's The Thing and Star Trek The Motion Picture, and his most recent credit is from 2021. He's done TV shows, he's done a lot of B-movies. But what is Escape from New York about? It's about a guy that gets sent to New York and has to get out. That is, that's a good summation. There is a ex-military now criminal who is arrested by the government and is being sent 
to Manhattan that has been converted into basically a prison island. He's about to be sent there. And as they're doing the processing or whatever, the president's plane is blown up. Escape from New York tells the tale of one man, one man of great reputation, a man named Snake Plissken. That everyone thought was dead. Everyone thought he was dead, but he's not, as he is tasked by an authoritarian prison system with rescuing the president of scary future America, or his arteries will explode. Now he, he gets I, into I a have of, to say, I kind of like the past future Americas. Oh, yeah, they're great. Like Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., or any of those old, it's like, oh, yeah, it's way in the future. And for us, it's like, oh, well, that's been like 30 years. Yeah. Another great movie that uh, took place in the future of 1997, RoboCop. But uh, Snake gets into a lot of scrapes along the way. He runs into a lot of colorful characters. The, the film stars Kurt Russell as Snake, Donald Pleasance as the president, Lee Van Cleef as prison administrator Bob Hawke, Tom Atkins as Hawke's number two Remy, Charles Cyphers as the Secretary of State who's losing his mind during the whole movie. Then there's the denizens of New York. There's Ernest Borgnine as Cabby, a lovable, crazy old cab driver. There's Harry Dean Stanton as Brain, the smartest guy in the city. There's Adrian Barbeau as Maggie, Brain's partner. And then there's Frank Doubleday as Romero, the creepiest looking guy in the whole movie. And last but not least, there's Isaac Hayes as the Duke of New York, A number one. For a while. A number one. For a while. Did I forget anybody? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, there's also I'm a ton of chuds yeah, and gypsies. Yeah, there's tons of people and extras and just weird psycho shit going on in this movie. Manhattan is a messed up place. Yeah. You see, the movie starts with this exposition, uh, voiced by none other than the goddess herself, Jamie, Jamie Lee, Lee Curtis. Curtis. Yeah, that explains how in 1998, the crime rate in America jumped 400%. Uh, now, what I wonder is, like, what did it jump from? Well, remember, a lot of things were moral crimes. Well, no. I, 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 there was a lot of talk about moral crimes. Well, yeah, but this was still 1988. Like We're talking, I mean, it's 1997 when the movie goes on. In 1988, they're saying the crime rate jumped to 400%. Well, yeah, but right? when did they change things to include moral crimes? Because if you, if you were to say, oh, yeah, starting on the 1st of January 2024, all these things are going to be moral crimes, the crime rate is going to scale. Skyrocket. I don't remember them mentioning moral crimes. I thought they in in the Escape from New York. I I think that was more of an escape from L.A. I don't know. I said before we started recording the two movies. It's the same movie. Oh, there so, are differences. Well, the the stories real. It's the same movie story wise. Pretty much. So if, forgive me if there's some things that blur but yeah, i don't know what i what i wonder is like was 1987 pretty much all right and then a year later it was 400 percent worse i mean that seems unlikely but really the movie was released in 1981 and, and what it means is that the crime had gone up 400 percent from 1981 apparently the crime in new york was so bad that they just walled the place off and said it's all yours criminals do what you want with it which which doesn't make a ton of sense that's well, uh that's some of the most valuable real estate in the world. That's like Paris handing over the Champs de la Cie to felons because there were too many muggings there one year. Well, if you it's, it's if you needed an isolated island that you could still have, you could still access if need be. You, you could control what's going in and out. Where else are you going to go? It wouldn't be Hawaii. It's too far away from anything. Alcatraz. Yeah, but it's too small. Well, then you just find a bigger island. They did. It was called Manhattan. Somewhere in the Florida Keys. I don't know. Puerto Rico's a territory. Don't they have islands? Yeah, but they also have like hurricanes and all that kind of tropical storm crap going on. Yeah, well, it was actually shot in a burned out section of East St. Louis that looked uh, pretty apocalyptic. 
Well, yeah, because they kept bringing in dumpsters full of garbage from the landfill. Well, that'll help. They, they'd bring in big barrels and light them on fire for the fire and smoke. They brought in a blown up airplane and dumpsters full of garbage. They'd do that every night. And then by six o'clock in the morning, they'd have it all cleaned up because it was still a working city at the time. I was just thinking like, yeah, we have to make it look horrible because, you know, prisoners, they just destroy stuff to destroy stuff because they're criminals. Well, when you put the, it's a the bunch worst of, of the worst. Oh, it's the, the worst of the worst. You can't tell. What did Maggie do to get sent there? I don't know. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what most of them did. I don't think they really said what any of them did to get there, did they? Well, uh, we know Snake robbed a Federal Reserve. Well, yeah, and they I think they filmed that at one point. I think that was... Yeah, that was a deleted scene. Yeah, because I couldn't remember if it was a deleted scene or if it was deleted I from don't the know script. If it is, I don't know if it is on my collector's edition Blu-ray. I need to double-check that. Yeah, I I watched this on an external drive, and the external doesn't let me go into the special features or anything. So, or at least the player that I I have for that drive doesn't let me go into that. So I don't know if it was on there. I just remembered that it was deleted, but I couldn't remember if that was one of the things that he just deleted from the script because he wrote it in like '74 or something like that, mm. or if that was something that was filmed and deleted. But I guess now um, that I think about it, he said he showed it to some people and they couldn't figure out what it was about based on the intro. So he cut the intro, which would have been the Federal Reserve robbery. So it was filmed. Never mind. It was filmed. <laughs> but we start on Liberty Island, Tom Atkins. And Tom First Atkins. film crew that in history to ever be fil- to ever be allowed to film on Liberty Island. Yes, it was. They were not allowed to film for very long. Well, there was. But they were there. There had just recently been a bomb threat. Yes. So they were a bit worried at the time. But Tom Atkins is awesome. Uh, he was in Night of the Creeps. He was in the Maniac Cop movies. He was in The Fog. He was in Halloween 3. He's great in everything he's ever done. He plays Remy, and he's getting a report that a chopper just blew up two guys on a raft trying to escape from New York. And we see all these soldiers with like these huge facial visors and future guns that look like M16s with the hand guards removed. That was all they could come up with for, with the budget for what the future guns looked like. They just well, found a bunch of M16s. Why do you need any, why do you need anything else? Well, they, they didn't. It works perfectly, yeah. but it's still it's just sort of recognizable. It's like, oh, those are M16s with the hand guards removed. Well, yeah, but at the time it wasn't so far in the future that you would have such drastic changes in the artillery. Indeed it was not. And a weird futuristic bus stops and this grizzled-looking tough guy with an eye patch gets off and surrounded by three guards and this is our guy. And that was a last-minute decision. Kurt Russell, at the last minute before they started filming, Kurt Russell decided, I'm going to put this eye patch on and didn't tell John Carpenter anything and just kind of showed up with it. And Carpenter's like, I like it. Let's go with it. And they just kept it in for, for the character. And a great character was born. Yep. He's being escorted into the prison, but someone stops him. He's halfway through, and he he goes through these halls, and they say, if you want to kill yourself now, we can do that. Just say you need to die, and we'll kill you. Yeah, do you want to go to this prison island, or just be executed now? Yeah, because uh, it's it's hell on the other side. uh, It didn't look too pleasant. No, it did not. The movie goes to another situation for a moment, and we see the president's plane has been hijacked. The code for the flight is David 10. Uh, but yeah, it takes him a minute to figure out that it's yeah. Air Force One. They decode it and learn it's Air Force One. Uh, it's about to go down in restricted airspace over New York. Repeat, a jetliner is about to crash into Manhattan. So, not fun. No. I believe in hindsight, we've... Um, been there, done that. Yeah. Well, also considering what 
building he landed the glider on when he went in. Yeah. But on Air Force One, there's this far out weather underground type uh, white terrorist lady is flying the plane and talking about how her and the rebels are going to strike a blow against the American police state. President is evacuated to an escape pod with a briefcase handcuffed to his wrist. He's also got a fancy tech bracelet that monitors his vital signs. And he says, may God look after you all to his buddies, like something like that, for escaping the plane. And the plane then crashes. Into yeah, a he gets in a, an escape pod that's basically just like a giant a basketball. Red, yeah, it looks like a and there's no seatbelts or anything in that thing. Doesn't have to be. The entire thing is a safety cushion. He's still going to bounce around a bit inside. He could very well. Yeah, that would still be a painful landing. Not as painful as it was for the other guys. The plane crashes into a building in Manhattan and blows up. Apparently, God wasn't looking that close. Well, that might have been. That might not have been that painful. It could have been quick and over rather painlessly. Time slows down in moments of great agony, though. Well, yeah, but if you think about it, it's still relatively quick as opposed to bouncing around in a metal ball that's supposed to protect you. True. But then we meet Hawk. Well, we've met him already, but he's played by Lee Van Cleef, classic Hollywood tough guy actor best known as Angel Eyes from The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, and tons of other things. He, he's pretty cool in this. Yeah, he, he did a lot of old westerns and was it American Ninja or something like that that he was in? Yes, I believe. Um, I, I just remember seeing uh, the episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000 for, for that movie. And, and as soon as I saw this, I was like, hey, I know that face. It's Lee Van Cleef. Yep. He's got that great voice. He's like, you don't think you're going anywhere, Pliskin. You know, like that. He's just love his voice. Uh, but he's pretty cool in this. Hawk has an earring, and he's got this cool leather-strapped wristwatch that looks like a punk stud bracelet. And you get the idea that maybe Hawk is, is a badass on his own time. Well, him and Snake used to kind of... Yeah, they were both in Special Forces. Yeah. Anyway, after the president crashes into New York, Hawk goes into the into the New York with a ton of guys and choppers. Is it to get Hawk the or Hawk? Hawk. I thought I kept hearing him say Hawk. I, I believe it's Well, I know I it's, it's spelled H-A-U, but yeah, I, kept, H-A-U-K. I thought they kept saying Hawk. I believe it's Hawk. Oh. I, I think it's a weird mix of the two. It's Hawk and Hawk. Hawk. Bob Hawk. Okay. Well, maybe it is Hawk. Van Cleef. It's easier that way. We know no, that one. <laughs> now I'm just calling him Hawk. But anyway. Yeah. How often pres- do I actually call people by the right name, though? Not very At often. At least I could remember Lee Van Cleef. Well, it's a great name to remember. Lee Van Cleef was a fine, fine actor. Yeah. Great and good, the bad, the ugly. Never seen that. Uh, you've never seen Good, the Bad, the Ugly? Nope. Wow, that's a shame. It's a good movie. Actually, if if I think about it, um, Unforgiven and um, what's the boxing? Uh, Million Dollar Baby. Yes. I think those are the only two Eastwood movies I've seen. Well, you have a ton of great movies to watch. Star Clint Eastwood. There's High Plains Drifter. There's the Outlaw Josie Wales. There's a. Oh yeah, I know uh, there's a ton. I just don't think I've seen. I've seen like bits and pieces, but I think as far as the full movies, I've only seen those. Pale Rider. There's uh, um, the other Sergio Leone movies that he made. uh, Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more. Like I said, I know there's a ton. Yeah, I just haven't seen them. Yeah, well, we're gonna have to cover some of those movies to force you to watch them. I've also not seen any John Wayne movies. I've only seen a few John Wayne movies. Yeah, when I was much younger, I much prefer Clint Eastwood to John Wayne. I don't remember really watching any westerns. Westerns are not a modern genre as much, unless you're talking about Roadhouse. I wouldn't really say that's a Western. Yes, Roadhouse is a Western. Everyone knows Roadhouse is a Western. I know there was times when like the Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon movie would be on. And uh, I remember my dad saying something about a spaghetti Western. And I'd see a glimpse of Clint Eastwood, but I was always busy with something else. I 
didn't really watch a lot of that. Plus, it's it's kind of different when your dad tells you to watch a movie. Then you're kind of like, oh, no, no, it's a chore. Now I have to watch it because dad said. Well, no, it wasn't that he was saying to watch it. It was just he'd comment that that's what it was. Okay. Um, but I watched all kinds of other things, too. I watched... Um, you watched Gargoyles? Well, yeah, I was going to say I'd watched, like, Guys and Dolls. Um, and Please don't make me cover Guys and Dolls. <laughs> it's a good movie. Frank's, yeah. the, Frank Sinatra, yeah. Guys and Dolls is a good movie. They're singing in the rain, stuff like that. Uh, but also a lot of Peter Sellers stuff. And, yeah, I watched a lot of old movies and of all kinds of different types. I just never really watched Westerns. Anyway, Hawk goes in because they have to retrieve the president. He's got a ton of guys and choppers to get the president, but they're too late. They meet one single guy who comes down the street, this crazy-looking dude, his wild spiked hair and, like, leather pirate garb. And he walks up to Hawk and says, you have 30 seconds to get back on the chopper or he dies. Touch me and he dies. You come back and he dies. Hawk is like, we can negotiate. This crazy looking guy is just like already counting down. He's like 21, 20, 19. And then finally Hawk is like, it's just everybody move. Well, it Get doesn't out. hurt that they showed him the president's severed finger. That's a, I think, was it a severed finger or just the ring? It was a finger. It was a finger. Yeah, it had the yeah. ring on it, but it was a finger. Yeah, the hawk and the guards leave in a hurry, and the weird-looking guy sort of hisses at them, and they leave, as they leave, and we see he's got all his teeth filed up points. He's Romero, and he's awesome. He's named after George Romero. He's great. He's played by Frank Doubleday. Sadly, Frank Doubleday died in 2018. He was also in Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, and he played a mercenary in broadcast news, and he also did a lot of TV. Frank Doubleday. I love Romero in this movie. He's like my favorite character. Yeah, he, he reminds me of like an oddball Steve Buscemi character. If you think about it, can you not picture Buscemi as that character? I could picture Buscemi. And it wouldn't maybe. be that far off. It wouldn't be that difficult for me to, to put him in that place. I don't know. I think Romero was a little more sinister than maybe a Steve Buscemi character uh, came off as in this universe. Oh, no, I'm not saying that that character. I'm just saying that actor in that role, in Romero's role. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to picture. I, I would. I don't know if Steve Buscemi would be able to bring the same physicality to it. Uh, I wonder if he would be too talky as Romero. Probably not. He talks what the script requires. Well, I would hope so. So there's uh, movies when he doesn't really say a whole lot. True. I mean, look at Lebowski. Yeah, shut the fuck up, Donnie. Exactly. But the action moves back to Liberty Island, where Snake is recruited to go in solo and rescue the president. He's all Hawk has to send in. See, Snake was lieutenant in Special Forces Unit Blacklight. He received two Purple Hearts in Leningrad, Siberia. He's the youngest man to be decorated by a president. This is going on in 1997. The year's shit all went down. And if U.S. Special Forces were operating in Leningrad in Siberia, that means the Cold War escalated hard between 1981 and 1997. So there's a lot of backstory that's being alluded to but not shown. Well, if crime's gone up 400%, I'd be willing to bet that there's some shit going on worldwide. That would make sense. It, it would also mean that Russia and America have been at war physically, but somehow the nukes haven't been sent out. So uh, that that's the biggest well, mystery speaking to me of right nukes, there. that's one of the nice little plot points for this movie. Nukes? Well, the nuclear... Um, Fusion. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our hero, the badass, Snake is given a choice, but not much of a one. You see, he can go into New York as just another unarmed prisoner, or he can go in with a ton of gear on a glider on a mission to find and rescue the president. Or, well, he could just fly that glider all the way to Canada and forget the whole thing, couldn't he? Nope. 
No, he can't. Because Hawk has Snake injected with micro-explosive charges on both sides of his neck. If he doesn't get them neutralized in less than 24 hours, his neck will bust open and he'll bleed out in minutes. It's the Suicide Squad before Suicide Squad. Kind of. Snake is the so- the whole squad. He's the one-man Suicide Squad. Well, Snake I mean, Plissken. he had to have been an, enough of a one-man squad in order to, to inspire a whole solid Snake Metal Gear character. Yeah, he did. Uh, did did he inspire it, or did they just plagiarize the entire notion of, of Snake? They said the name, at least, was from that, but a lot of the, the design, and because doesn't he also have an eye patch? I believe he does. Yeah. Which reminds me also of, uh, didn't uh, Duke Nukem steal all of Ash Williams' best lines? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I remember Duke Nukem, the video game character, would often say, Hail to the king, baby. Like that. I have no idea. I know there's, um, I'm trying to remember what movie it was, but like the whole kick-ass and chew bubblegum thing was not original. That was uh, They Live. Either way, Snake will bleed out in minutes. You see, the president isn't just needed back because he's the president. The president is running late for well, a very important Well, he'll only bleed out in minutes if, if those go off. Yeah, if those go off. And they won't just go off on their own. They have we to have dissolve. a countdown. Yeah. Well, there's a countdown until the the charges are encased in a dissolvable material that is being dissolved by his blood. And the longer he waits, the more they dissolve down to their cores and are activated and detonate. So what Snake has to do is fulfill the mission in a certain time period to get the charges neutralized. Otherwise, they will blow up in his neck. But the reason he has such he has this important time limit is because the president is late for a very important date. There's a summit in Hartford, Connecticut that the president has to get to. Russia and China are there, and the president has this thing in his briefcase that can end the war and save the human race. And that's the top priority, and Snake is a disposable means of achieving its end. No Hartford summit, no Snake Pliskin. And this very important thing is a cassette tape. So We don't know that yet. That really kind of shows the, the age of the movie. Yes, it was. Uh, that was high tech future stuff in 1981. Yeah. Uh, what What is your impression of Snake at this point in the movie, though? What like uh, What have we learned about him? I mean, we know he has the deep, gravelly voice. Yeah, that's about all we know. We know he has the eye patch. We know he wears a cool leather jacket that doesn't really match his pants. Well, it's um, combat pants, a uh, tank top or some kind of sleeveless shirt, and a leather jacket and boots. Yeah. Cool boots with like these uh, metal. Yeah, not you know. cool boots like the Big Trouble in Little China. Cool boots that have a knife in them, though. These no, are completely those, different. Those weren't cool boots, boots. Those are moccasins. Yeah, they look like boots to me. They were judging boot by size how moccasins. Well, which they they were a, a moccasin style boot. Either way, I think this Snake's first words in the movie are "Call me Snake," aren't they? Uh, probably. He says yeah, it I think enough. So. And uh, the first time we really get to see him interacting is with Hawk in his office. And uh, we get to learn the snake is pretty much just like this loner who doesn't care about much of anything. Well, no, that's not true. He cares about himself. He cares about himself. I think I've heard either Kurt Russell or John Carpenter say that Snake Plissken has one thing that he cares about in life, and that is the next 60 seconds so that he can survive it. Yeah, pretty much. And that is, that's everything that he does is surviving the next 60 seconds. So he's a very present person and probably pretty smart, I think. I, I, I don't, I get the feeling Snake's no dummy. 
I don't know. I didn't really get much of a sense of his intelligence. It was more, um, he seemed capable. Like one of those people that, okay, so you need somebody that can fly a plane or a helicopter or a glider or drive these weird vehicles or happens to be able to use all these kinds of fancy weaponry or anything. Yeah, just give it to him. If he doesn't know it already, he'll figure it out within the first 30 seconds. He's a professional, as it were. Yeah. Professional soldier, soldier of fortune. Not the A-team style, though. No, he's not. No. I don't know. It, it doesn't really say that he's a mercenary either. Uh, no. he's, he, he was a He's a former decorated soldier, an officer even. Yeah. And, uh, and he was caught robbing uh, the Federal Reserve Depository, which might have been Fort Die Knox. Hard three. I, yes. Never goes well for characters who robbed the, the Federal Reserve Deposit. Uh, well, at least Snake lived. Yeah. No, I think Snake makes a good impression on the audience. I think Snake, uh, when we see him, we see, okay, who is this guy? You know, let's, uh, let's get to know this fucker. I don't know. He kind of came off a bit cocky to me. Like the first impression is like, okay, yeah, he's just a bit too cocky. Maybe, but I think. uh, Oh, no, that's definitely what he came off to me. No, maybe that was, he definitely came off too cocky to me. Well, fair enough. But uh, I think uh, as the movie progresses, you see that he can back up that cockiness with uh, skills. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Snake goes in with the glider and lands on top of one of the World Trade Center towers. The idea is he's going to find the president, take off again in the glider by flying it off the roof and out of New York. In the meantime, he's got all sorts of gear. He's got an Uzi with a scope and a big silencer on it, so it kind of looks like Boba Fett's gun from Star Wars. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, what good does that scope really on an Uzi? Uh, it's not. It just looks cool. Oh, yeah. It looks cool, but it's, like, it's kind of pointless, I would yeah, say. pointless. Just looks cool. Uh, he's got a tracking device that tracks down the president's vital signs monitoring bracelet. He has a radar tracer bracelet of his own that he can push a button on and call for immediate rescue, or at least let them know where he is. He's got night vision goggles, he's got a walkie-talkie, and for shits and giggles, they even gave him a digital countdown monitor so he can see exactly how long he has until the charges in his neck go off. Which is kind of helpful to keep track of how long before your head goes boom. Yeah, that is, it is helpful, but it's also, it also serves a very important part, uh, a very important service in the movie as a device that, you know, it, it, it's always ratcheting up the tension. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what you can always look at the clock because there's a few times in the movie where snake just gets knocked out and um, who knows how long he's going to be out. You need to have a good countdown and that really helps to give that good countdown. It does. But Snake lands on top of the World Trade Center, makes his way down to the street, and he finds the wreck of Air Force One. Okay, so to get down to the street, they tell him there's a power box that he can turn on to take the elevator. But even then, he still has to do 50 floors on foot. Yeah, going down. Yeah, which plays a big part in one of my questions in this later. But anyway, as you were saying. He finds the wreck of Air Force One, even though a computer showed it crashing into a building, all the wreckage is on the street. But there's no survivors in any case. No. No. Uh, Snake follows the tracker thingy. He's all about business. He's just, let's find the guy and get out of here. And so he... Well, if you had a bomb in in your neck, wouldn't you want to just get the guy and get out so you can get the bomb out of your neck? Yep. And that's what he's doing. He's got this tracker that's supposed to find the president. So he just follows it. He winds up in a theater where a bunch of guys in drag are singing and dancing on stage. And they've got a little band of guys playing music there in front of them and in just old rickety chairs. And I can't remember the tune that well, but the lyrics are by Nick Castle, and they're kind of hilarious. Something about everyone's coming to New York, isn't it? This is bliss. 
It's a lark, buddy. Everyone's coming to New York. No more Yankees. Strike the word from your ears. Then the roulette. There's no more opera at the Met. This is hell. This is fate. But now this is your world and it's great. So rejoice. Pop a cork, buddy. Everyone's coming to New York. That's what they're singing. And just with a little bit more tune. Yeah. And some music. Yeah, and music. Yeah, yeah I, I I could have made that a full performance or something, but no, I figured I'd spare you my attempt at you know sounding like five men in drag. Um, okay, and I wasn't going to say anything, but now that you said that, what would the difference be between five men and five men in drag as far as how they sound? You got me there. Yeah, probably would sound the same. Yeah, uh, but you know the men men performing on in the movie were all in drag, so. That's the uh, point I was making. I were can't they sound all like they I, I don't remember really what they were wearing, but they were doing a theater thing. So if some of them were dressed as women or whatever, but I didn't pay attention to whether they were all were or not. Pretty sure they were. Oh, okay. It was an old timey drag show. Like it was, not it like, was it like a vaudeville kind of thing. Yeah. It was kind of, it, yeah, it was definitely a vaudeville style song and dance number. Yeah. But in the theater, we also meet this smiling older guy in a cabbie hat that's smiling and bouncing his head to the music. And this is Ernest Borgnine as cabbie. And if you don't know who Ernest Borgnine is, shame on you. Uh, he was in Marty. He was in McHale's Navy. He was Mermaid Man on SpongeBob. He was and in not Gattaca. just an old McHale's Navy. He was in the, the remake or whatever it was. With Bruce Campbell? Yeah. He was mm-hmm. McHale's dad in that, I believe. He was in Gattaca. He was in The Wild Bunch. He was in The Dirty Dozen, The Last Days of Pompeii, Convoy. The Devil's Reign, Willard, just tons and tons of stuff. Yeah, wasn't he in some, it was kind of like a Princess Bride ripoff thing where he was telling his grandkids story. And I no think idea. it was like something about Merlin or something. No clue. Never heard of it. Don't recall that picture. Uh, I Again, Mystery Science Theater. Mm. But he passed away in 2012. He plays Cabby in this. Cabby is called Cabby because the only guy who driving a cab still in Manhattan. It's a fairly well-armed cab. Yeah, they don't really go out of their way to come up with creative names. No, not really. Snake, brain, cabby. Yeah, it's more descriptives. Yeah. Cabby recognizes Snake, who is a man of great reputation. Yeah, everybody recognizes him. Even though he's supposed to be dead, everybody recognizes him. I know you. You're Snake Plissken. I thought you were dead. Yeah. Uh, Snake is following the tracker, and the tracker leads him to a stairwell that says the president is down below the stairs. Uh, He's just following the tracker with gun in hand, and uh, Cabby tells him, "Uh, You don't want to go down there, Snake! Like that. But Snake goes down to that basement, he kicks him ass, he sees some girl being tossed around like a party favor with chestal nudity, which I found shocking, and he finds bums sitting around fires. And some of them try to accost Snake and steal his boots. Snake takes out two men in like one second, and from then on is left alone. Yeah, I said everybody recognizes Snake, but there are a few that don't, and those are usually the ones that try and attack him. Yeah. Yeah, everyone that recognizes him is like, yeah, if we're going to come at you, we're coming at you heavily armed. (laughs) But he finds the president's vitals monitor bracelet on a bum, and that bum is played by none other than Buck Flower. 
because this movie is full of stars. And he knew he was going to be president when he found that. Yeah. Buck Flower played a drunk or a hobo or a country bumpkin in tons of movies and TV shows. He was Red the Bum in Back to the Future. He was the cook in Starman and a drifter in They Live and both John Carpenter movies. He's one of those guys. You've seen him in so much stuff. He's part of the background of dozens of movies and he does a great job every time. And here, though, he's getting the shit beat out of him by another drunk and Snake walks over and finds the president's bracelet on him and assumes that the real president has been eaten somewhere well by what he has seen it's a pretty good theory yeah yeah i mean if snake had seen the guy with the filed teeth with the guys with the president's finger i mean you could have even surmised like yeah that guy definitely ate the president yeah quite possibly i mean that that normally in in a lot of media if somebody has filed teeth that tends to mean they're a cannibal well i mean Klingons weren't cannibals. Well, Klingons didn't file their teeth. Though. Ferengi teeth weren't were cannibals. And, and they did that. file their teeth. Ferengi filed their teeth? Yeah. Oh, well, I didn't know that. I'm not a Deep Space Nine guy. Well, they were in more than just Deep Space Nine, but yeah. Anyway. Yes, well, every all the Star Trek aliens are in all the Star Treks. Well, you're the one that went straight to Deep Space Nine with Ferengi. Isn't that where they were introduced? I don't know if were they introduced there or were they introduced on Next Generation, but really not done with until Deep Space Nine. That would make most sense. I don't remember. I don't but know. anyway, it has nothing to do with this movie. Snake uh, gets on the walkie-talkie and says, you know, the president's been eaten somewhere, but Hawk is having none of it. Snake's mission stands. He has to find the president or die trying. Or at least find the tape. Yeah. And Snake sighs, slumps his shoulders. He goes to find the president's escape pod. He finds a little junk chair next to it, puts down his gun, just takes a fucking break because, God damn it, how the hell is he supposed to find the guy? Well, some, I it, mean, one man in all of Manhattan. Yeah, it's a big it's a big hiding ground. Yeah. But it's something you never see any action heroes doing is a snake literally just finds a chair and sits on it and does nothing at all for a few minutes. He's just like, "Well, fuck this." Well, you got to take a break and reassess. Yeah. The movie actually like takes its time at this point and it just like the music kicks up is is like Snake's theme or something and uh you just see Snake just sitting down in his chair and going, "Uh and uh, it's it to me. It's just like this funny oddball moment. Yeah, there there was a lot of those little just kind of quirky moments scattered throughout. And also, this fun bit when uh, when Hawk tells Snake like uh, you have to find the president, and and Snake's just like no human compassion. Like uh, like uh, for a moment, it sounds like Snake is lamenting the situation of uh, of military directives or something. He he expected some some sort of sympathy from Hawk, but didn't get any. I mean, he hasn't got any from anyone so far. Yeah. But Snake is sitting there, and then the Chuds come out of the sewers, and he has to get moving. Uh, all the Chuds seem to they seem to ignore him, but he he doesn't like the looks of them, so he he ducks into an abandoned warehouse or that a, meets or his a wife, hard, a hardware store called Chock Full of Nuts. There he runs into a girl who recognizes him just like Cabby did. She uh, she thinks he's a cop at first, but then she figures out who he is, and she's like, "Snake Pliskin? I thought." I thought you were dead. Snake explains the situation and gives her a cigarette, and, and they have something close to a romantic encounter before the chuds break through the floor and drag her down to eat her. She realizes he's new there because it was a real cigarette. Yeah, but Snake skedaddles, and he's shooting at pursuing chuds, and the chuds are all these just look like crazy hunched-over people in raggedy clothes. The woman in Chock Full of Nuts was played by Susan Hubley, famous for a role on All My Children, and in the movie Hardcore with George C. Scott. She was also married to Kurt Russell prior to his marrying Goldie Hawn. Season Hubley was also in Stepfather 3, Children of the Corn I 5. I thought he wasn't she, married to Goldie Hawn. I think I he's, thought theirs was one of those infamous, like, 
they're together forever but never got married relationships. Oh, I have no idea. I that may be it. I'm hmm. in that case I am sorry for being wrong about Kurt Russell may marry to Goldie Hawn. Season two of his last acting credit was from 1999, two years after this movie is set. So she hasn't worked in a while. That's an interesting, because th there's a lot of people that were in this movie that haven't worked in a while. But then again, a lot of people in this movie that haven't worked in a while haven't worked in a while because they've been dead for a while. Yeah. Well, Lee Van Cleef died in 1989. And Ernest Borgnine. And 2012. Romero. and Frank Doubleday died. Yeah. In yeah. Anyway. But uh, Snake is running away from the Chuds. Oh, yeah. He loses his walkie-talkie, so no more conferring with Hawk back at HQ. Eh, it's not like he really had a whole Enjoyed lot to it. say to him anyway. No. Uh, he's running through an alley, and he sees Cabby pull up at the end of it. Cabby tells him to get get in this, Snake. Get in here. Cabby throws a Molotov cocktail to the Chuds, and he just vrooms out of there. Yeah, and, and it's like all casual, just having a conversation as he's lighting a Molotov and tossing it out the top of the car. Yeah. And he tells Snake, this stuff's more, worth more than gold, Snake. Gold, I tell you. Because he, he has a bottle full of gasoline that he's about to throw. Yeah, they've converted their a lot of their vehicles and stuff over to steam. Yeah, but apparently they also have a way of m making gas, which we'll see later. Well, yeah. I, I just thought that since we didn't bring that up and, and everything, that, that's how a lot of their vehicles get around. Is steam. Yeah. Oh, well, actually, you know, steam engines are reliable engines. Uh, yeah. They, uh, there are people who drive steamer cars and yeah so they trains were great. and yeah nothing wrong with a steam engine as long as you have something to power it with darn right but uh cabby throws a molotov at cocktails or molotov at the chuds and boy is he excited to have the snake pliskin in his cab well, yeah wouldn't you be is he gonna tell everyone about this but but snake is not a people person no the snake puts a gun to cabby's head and grills him for info <laughs> just yeah it's like why would you put a gun to his head and ask him this man is like just fawning over you he'd probably tell you anything you wanted to know it kind of reminds me of uh like born identity when he sent her into the hotel to get the information and he's given her all these instructions do this do that count this and she comes out and is like yeah i just asked for it and it's that same thing it's like dude just just ask he'd probably tell you this guy loves you yeah well uh snake doesn't trust people enough to just ask he puts a gun to their head and gets the answers he needs yeah because you know torture and fear and shit that's always proved to get the most reliable answers but he does give answers uh like pres like snake asks him where's the president and he goes duke's got the president everybody knows that snake i know yeah who's the duke oh the duke duke of new york a number one he's the big guy snake that's not ernest Borgnine sounds a lot more gravelly than that but uh cabby isn't willing to take snake to see the duke but he does take snake to the library where one of duke's close associates lives and I don't remember exactly how they had that conversation. I remember, I, I think Cabbage said, I can't take you to Duke, but I can take you to meet Brain or something like that. Yeah, I don't remember how it went down, but it basically it's like, I won't take you to him, but this guy can, can get you there. Yeah. And that's when, that's when we finally see Stevie Wayne. We do indeed. Who lives in the library? It's Brain, the smartest guy in Manhattan Island prison. He's the genius who somehow refines gas for people to drive their cars with. Cabby knocks at the library door and Maggie answers. Cabby says he's got Snake Pliskin out here and that Snake wants to meet Brain. Maggie looks impressed, having heard of Snake, like everyone else, yeah. and having thought he was dead. 
According to Cabby, Maggie was a gift that the Duke gave Brain yeah. to keep him happy. Mm-hmm. Now, Maggie is played by the inimitable and beautiful Adrian Barbeau. Stevie Wayne. One-time wife of John Carpenter. Genre fans will remember her from other films of John Carpenter's oeuvre, as well as Swamp Thing by Wes Craven and Creepshow by George Romero. She was Ronnie Dangerfield's cheating wife in Back to School. She did the voice of Catwoman on Batman the Animated Series. She was on Dexter. She was on Grey's Anatomy. She was on Maud for 125 episodes as Carol. She's got a resume a mile long, and she was first introduced to me when I watched Joe Bob Briggs present Swamp Thing on Monster Vision one Thursday night in the 90s. Or Adrian Barbo and Swamp Thing was like the ultimate for teenage boys for years. Yes. <laughs> um, except when it's shown on TNT. Oh, um, yeah. Where they don't. Uh, well, show. even then, she just is gorgeous. Yes, she is. And Joe Bob went on at great length about her breasts. Well, yeah, they are prominent. And in, in this, definitely. We don't get a lot of background on Maggie besides that she was a gift to Brain from the Duke. Uh, She seems pretty loyal to Brain as the movie goes on, so uh, apparently she didn't mind being his companion. It's possible that life was not easy for her in the Duke's retinue, and also she's a crack shot. Not really. I think she was okay. If she was a crack shot, she would hit the Duke. In in one scene, at least, she's a crack shot. Oh, yeah, when it's important for the story. Fair enough. Then we meet Brain, or Harold, as Snake calls him. His full name is Harold Hellman. Now, Brain hasn't just heard of Snake. He used to be a partner in crime to our erstwhile eye-patched protagonist, or he was, until he ran out on Snake and Fresno Bob. The bastards killed Fresno Bob. Now, Snake has a mind to get answers from from Brain, or maybe he'll blow Harold's head off and get revenge. It's a pretty tense scene in this library where there's a miniature oil well coming out of the floor, pumping oil out of the ground, apparently. Brain discovered oil under the New York Public Library. It's like right there. One would think the fumes might be bad for the books or the people living there in the library, but whatever. Snake tells them he's got a glider and he can get them out if they help him find the president. Well, is it just, I mean, it's not gas. It's just oil. Yeah, but there's fumes. There's going to yeah, be but a it's, lot of... It's not the same as gasoline or like the refinery it's fumes petroleum. I think that that was an oil well that he's he's sucking raw petroleum out of the earth. Yeah. Now, if I I don't know the process of that, but the fumes the aren't near as bad as once you start to, doing anything with it. According to Simpsons, when Mr. Burns was pumping oil sideways out from under the school and leaking fume leaking waste gases from the pumping into Moe's Tavern, Moe's Tavern had to be shut down. So I assume the Simpsons was right and the fumes are terrible. Well, I mean, the Simpsons did predict pretty much everything ever so i mean there's well that could be why everyone's so crazy it's the fumes exactly see might be see you just have to think about the fumes they're very important to the story not really well just like killer clowns why because they're clowns why because the fumes because the fumes the fumes that's the that's what the whole this whole movie is the fumes that should be the name of this one the fumes no (laughs) it's called escape from new york it's a good title no for the episode The name of this episode should be The Fumes. Maggie tells them they're all getting out anyway, because the Duke is going to use the Prez as a hostage to force the release of all the prisoners on Manhattan in one big convoy coming across the 69th Street Bridge. That's been mined. That's been mined, but it's okay, because Brain has a diagram of all the mines that he he knows exactly how to get around them. And only he can read it. Only he can read the diagram, because Brain is a smart guy. And he knew that if he didn't write the diagram in code, then somebody could steal it and kill him. Makes sense. Yeah. But Snake lets them in on the fact that the president won't be worth much as a hostage if there's no way to get him to the Hartford Summit. 
They yep. think Snake is lying. Snake well. says maybe he is. So maybe he should just shoot Brain and go find the Prez himself. Brain doesn't want that and agrees to help. Oh, I mean, would you? Well, it would. You're kind of. It's a rock and a hard place there. But Snake needs Brain to show him where the president is. Well, yeah, because he doesn't know how to find the Duke. If he knew how to find the Duke, he wouldn't need the brain. You're just having fun with the names now. Well, I'm trying to figure out a way to work Pinky into it. And the only way I can think of is really not what I should do because Adrian Barbeau deserves more respect than that. Snake needs Brain to show him where the president is. According to Brain, without his direct information, Snake will never find the Prez. So Cabby, Snake, Maggie, and Brain all stride out of the library, kick his thieves, and they're going to go on an adventure, get the president, and escape prison. And then the Duke shows up at this entourage of souped-up, low-riding apocalypse mobiles. And Cabby yeah, ditches with them chandeliers. All. Yeah, and Cabby ditches them all like a bad habit. But yeah, it, the, those were some far-out cars. The Duke's, uh, the Duke's car, which Romero was sitting in the back, had little mini chandeliers uh, over the headlights. Yeah, kind of like how when you see like political vehicles and they have that, that country's flags. flags up on the, the front, this was chandeliers. And he had a disco ball inside the car. Yeah. And I mean, they, they did say for the Duke, they wanted somebody that was just a larger than life figure. And they got the Black Moses of Soul, which there you go. You got your larger than life figure. But and how are you going to portray that in a movie? You give them chandeliers for headlights. But Cabby runs off at the sound of the Duke's engines because that is how you don't cross the Duke. Nobody crosses the Duke. Brain says the plan is off because they have no wheels. They have to get across town to find the president. And Snake says, fuck that, and steals one of the Duke's cars while Duke ain't there. Because the Duke is there to get Brain's diagram. Well, he's got to get across the bridge without blowing up. Yeah, but Brain is not in. So Duke makes goes me in, wonder, though, Brain's not there. If the Duke can put together an army that big, why not send a few people across and then when one blows up, well, that's one less mine. And just, okay, next wave and go again. Or maybe dig up some of the crazies that live under New York and send them over there. Oh, yeah. I didn't say how he had to put his army together. Well, you, well, it sounded to me a little bit like you were saying he he would have to pick his loyal from his loyal soldiers. Oh, no, soldiers. you just you grab, your, okay, here's your army, and then you just pick some and say, okay, now, first wave, and they go, okay, well, these go, guys blew up, that, that cleared that section, next wave, and just keep going until you're all the way across. The only thing you have to deal with then is bullets from the top of the wall. I don't think the Duke has such power over his men that he can order them directly into suicide. So he would have to have the crazies go that that would be forced to do his bidding with or like the ones that have pissed him off and like you want a chance to live, go. Yeah, make it like Squid Game where they have to walk across yeah. the bridge and yeah. Okay. I mean, it wouldn't be out of the the um, it wouldn't be out of character for the movie. I mean, it's kind of like well, they do it in L.A. too. I mean, they're the same movie. <laughs> But no, I mean, that whole, like, you want to live? This is what you got to do. Well, that's not how John Carpenter and Nick Castle wrote it. They wrote it so the snake and Maggie and Brain steal one of Duke's cars, and they ha they have to get to the president, so they go down Broadway. Bad move. Broadway is a burning street of trash barriers populated by angry men who throw things, throw dangerous things at passing cars. We've got a lot snake, of heads Maggie on pikes on the road. Yes. Yeah. yeah, bad area. I got the feeling that the guys who run Broadway are not the Duke's men and seeing one of Duke's cars coming down Broadway was like a huge violation of some border treaty or something. I got the impression it was more like a feral area. Makes sense. Yeah, because uh, that would explain the heads on pikes. Yeah, it's just kind of like this is this is where the crazies are. You don't go there. I thought all the crazies lived underground. 
Okay. This is where the above ground crazies are. Or actually, they, who says that they didn't go underground? Very well might have. But they have to fight their way down Broadway, dodging projectiles, and when they get to the end, there's a wall of trashed cars blocking their way. And Snake smashes through the wall in reverse, and the Broadway guys don't give chase. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of chases in this. There's like there's well, one main one, but there's not a whole lot of real chases. No, there's not. Well, you could say the entire movie's a chase. Right? Who's chasing the president? Well, yeah, but I mean, it's not like it's it's not a movie where there's a bunch of chase scenes. That is true. It's a lot of okay. Now we're gonna go to here, do a little scene, and then go from there to this next spot, do a little scene. But Brain directs Snake to a train yard where the president is being held. He tells Snake which specific car the president is in, and then he goes to distract the guards for Snake. Brain walks up to the guards with Maggie and asks to see the president, but the guards have orders from the Duke that no one gets in to see him. Either way, Brain does a good job distracting. As Snake is able to sneak in the car with the president, snap one guy's neck before he can do or say anything, and then get crossbowed in the thigh by the other guy guarding the big cheese. Snake collects the president, and they exit the train. Snake now limping badly, as he will for the rest of the film. Their freedom is short-lived, however. They are soon swarmed by the Duke's guards, and the Duke himself, along with Romero, is there with Brain and Maggie. Brain says he had, no, he had to do what Snake told him to. Snake had a gun to his head. Duke just shrugs. Romero points as if to sort of stick it in Brain and Maggie's face that they were part of a bad move against the Duke or something. But I don't know. Romero is awesome. His character is named after George Romero, another fam- amazing filmmaker. But Duke is the well, only one. He's not the only so- one that's ma- named after a filmmaker. There's another this. character named Cronenberg. Yeah, and there's uh, Taylor, I think. Uh, I, I there's think a there's character like named three. Taylor, but his scenes were deleted, and I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you who Taylor was named after. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember either. I just know I, there was I, like three or four different. I I really that, need to get into my Blu-rays deleted scenes and enjoy those. Do you have you have this on physical media? I assume. Yeah, I have the All Blu-ray right. for this one and LA. Is it the Shout Factory Blu-ray? No. Oh, that's a shame. This is this is when like when you'd get a Blu-ray and you'd get the Blu-ray and the DVD. Oh, this was before cool. even like they started doing like the digital. It was you'd get a Blu-ray and a DVD and a little card inside saying this Blu-ray might have been made after your Blu-ray player, so it might need a firmware update. So it's an old Blu-ray. Long as it still works. Oh yeah, and you like the special features. I I honestly don't know what special features are on it. Oh, that's a shame. I I don't remember ever watching this from the discs. I've watched the movie a bunch of times, but I don't remember watching them from the discs. And when I watched it just recently for this, like I said, I put it in an external player for my laptop, and the app that I used for watching Blu-rays doesn't allow me to go into special features. It's like you can play the movie, you can come up with subtitles, and you can pick between audio languages, but it doesn't say, like, if it's commentaries or any of that, it just says, like, English, German, whatever, and just has a list. Or it'll just say one, two, three, and you don't know what any of it is. And I'm not going to sit and just keep going through, so I just hit play and accept yeah. it. That sounds like... Uh, frustrating. Like, yeah, yeah, very frustrating. Yeah. And you should maybe just watch it from the disc once in a while on a Blu-ray player or something. Well, normally I would, but for the current situation, it's kind of my only choice was that. I'm sorry. Um, I'll watch it at some point. I hope you do, and enjoy the special features when you get to them. If I remember. 
Fair enough. <laughs> There's but a the lot Duke, of other things going on to try and remember just to go back to look for special features. Duke is the only person so far in the movie not to recognize Snake on sight and just walks up to this iPad's dude his guards have and says, who are you? And the Duke has some intimidating presence. And we've heard about this guy for some time in the movie and now that he's finally here dressed in this far out like founding father's coat, pure Isaac Hayes soul singing charisma oozing from every pore, Snake doesn't answer him. So Duke prods the arrow in his leg and Brain steps in to say, well, I'll need him alive, Duke. Duke shrugs again and knocks Snake out with a tire iron. He then confesses that he had heard of Snake Plissken, heard he was dead. Because everyone thought he was dead. Isaac Hayes is known much more for his music than for his acting. Or David chef. Por- or, uh, I'll get to chef. With David Porter at Stax Records, he was, in, he was in-house producer who helped create some of the most amazing soul music of the 60s for bands Sam and Dave and Booker T and the MGs. He started he later- the the gold chain thing too yeah he later embarked on an amazing career of his own putting out hit records like hot buttered soul the soundtrack to the movie shaft and black moses as an actor he did a ton of tv with appearances in films like i'm gonna get you sucker one of grimm's favorites it i've never seen movie. it i've never seen it sadly oh it's uh, uh wayne's brothers that's another reason to check it out. Yeah. I don't have it on DVD. I have to find it somewhere. Oh, to watch. Yeah. He was also on Tales from the Crypt, and he was in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Do you remember who he played in Robin Hood Men in Tights? Uh, he was the father of a chew. He was a sneeze. Yep, yep. you got it. Yeah. It's a fine memory you have there, Grim. Well, I just I just watched Robin Hood Men in Tights last night. What a coincidence! Yeah, purely, I completely forgot he was in this. I just needed a different cha- a different state of mind from what I had just finished watching. So I was flipping through and was like, oh, okay, well, I haven't watched this for a while. And then he popped up and was like, oh, wow, I forgot all about him. I'm on the left bank. I'm on the west bank. I'm on the east bank. I'm on the... Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts with Dave Chappelle as a chew, and he's jumping over the creek. That's at the... Um, when they first meet Little John. Yeah. And then they, they knock each other's quarterstaffs down to little nubs, and Robin just uses the nub to... And he falls in. He's like, I can't swim! And he's laying on his back in a little tiny puddle. Yeah. yeah. Classic... Mm-hmm. Well, it's not quite classic Mel Brooks, but it's still Mel Brooks. By, by all accounts, it's one of the top Mel Brooks movies. I really? I don't put it as high as a lot of people, but for most Mel Brooks lists, it's up there with like Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. Yeah, good for it. As you mentioned yourself, uh, a new generation of fans fell in love with Isaac Hayes when he was rediscovered as chef on South Park uh, until Hayes left the show and sadly yep. passed away in 2008. I think one of my favorite chef things was the um, salty chocolate balls. Salty chocolate. And uh, have you ever looked up on YouTube Isaac Hayes performing salty chocolate balls in concert? No. It's amazing. The crowd goes absolutely wild. Oh, I bet. And Isaac Hayes ha- looks like he's having so much fun singing salty chocolate balls. Well, and like whenever backup, you see him he's got perform, he singers. always looks like he's having a blast performing. He's a great performer. Yeah. Sadly, as I said, Isaac Hayes has passed away in 2008. He was that larger-than-life character that they needed for this. He was a very, guy. He was a very impactful person. Yeah. Legend in music. He's yes. in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Which, well-deserved for both. Yeah. But back at HQ, Hawk and Remy and the Secretary of State haven't heard from Snake in hours. The Secretary is getting antsy. Well, yeah, because he lost his walkie-talkie. Yeah. Snake wakes up without his gear and without a shirt because John Carpenter knows what the ladies want to see. And see it, they do. And plenty of it. Well, you have to have some way to show off that snake tattoo on his abs. He does have a snake tattoo in his abs that goes down into his pants. And it's a big 
cobra. It's a big cobra, but it disappears down into his pants. Man, you know what I love about the fog with Adrian Barbo? Was Man, Adrian Barbo great... in the fog? What? You said, do you know what I love about Adrian Barbo in the fog? I said Adrian Barbo in the fog. Yes, obviously. But one of the things I loved about her performance was, man, she had a great voice for radio. Yeah. Just, I just like, I could listen well, to she Stevie did stage, Wayne tell me the weather all night. She did stage theater stuff too. So she has had some experience at voice, using yeah. the, the, I, the I, voice I, skills you need for theater is a lot different than what you need for cinema. Yes. Uh, some great actors on the stage will be able to whisper on stage and be heard in the back of the auditorium. Yeah. It's, a, it's an amazing instrument they're able to calibrate. But Snake wakes up without his gear and shirtless. Well, I mean, if you knock him out, would you let let him stay there with his gear? No, obviously not. Yeah. I mean, it's Snake Plissken. You don't... It's like saying, oh, okay, you know, well, yeah, it's only Riddick. We can yeah, leave a teacup or whatever around. N- no. <laughs> you that give would him be a good nothing. fight. That would be an interesting, like, matchup. Riddick, like, versus, Riddick versus Snake. Snake, yeah. I think Snake would probably lose. Maybe. I don't know. I have never seen the Riddick movies. I've only seen Pitch Black. What? Yeah, I suck. <sighs> but you haven't seen any... You haven't seen Good, Bad, the Ugly, so we're even. We can't, but these were, like, more recent. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. I have memories associated with Pitch Black that I don't like revisiting. Well, that's why you watch the others and not Pitch Black. I'll have to. Even the animated one, was it Dark Fury or whatever one? That was good, too. Snake is groggy, and things are moving around him. Like, the Duke is using the President as target practice using Snake's Boba Fett gun. Him and Romero are sitting on a couch with a lot of flunkies. Now, all may now be lost. Uh, We've all got our... But at least we've got all our ducks lined up for the third act. All the characters are introduced. All the pieces are on the board. Brain is making moves. He tells the Duke that the President might be useless as a hostage suit. Duke doesn't care. He just has the Prez recite his lesson. President says, you're the Duke of New York. You're a number one. Damn right he is. Duke tells Brain to go and get the diagram Brain has of the mines on the 69th Street Bridge. They will move en masse with the president as a shield and ride to freedom. The Duke has said so. He shoots the president's briefcase open and Romero goes over and rummages in it. He finds a cassette and keeps it. Well, you know, he wasn't happy about Operation Get Behind the Darkies, so he decided Operation Get Behind the Brit. That is a South Park reference. Yes, it is. Yes, South Park bigger, longer, uncut. Yes. When the invasion of Canada was called Operation Get Behind the Darkies. No, Get Behind the Darkies was their Operation Human Shield. They were putting all the black people in front to die first to give them more protection. During the invasion of Canada, wasn't it? Well, I don't remember if it was invasion of Canada or whatever, but yeah, for, for the big battle. Well, you know what that means, Grim. You have an excuse to watch South Park Bigger, Longer, Uncut again. Well, you so, know, it's coming up. Yes, it is. And, believe it or not, we'll have a guest for that one. Woohoo! Yeah, Kana will be back. Awesome. Kana was great. Glad I'm glad she enjoyed her time on the show, and hopefully she will enjoy her next visit. Hopefully. I hate to tell you, though, but South Park's a musical. As I am aware that it's a musical. Uh, <laughs> I've seen the movie, for crying out loud. <laughs> Well, South Park I, is a fun musical. Yeah. Anyway, Romero, the freaky guy with the pointy hair, now has the president's cassette. And that is an important plot point. Everyone remember that the cassette was in Romero's hands. And how did he get it? Because the Duke shot open the president's briefcase. Yeah. This briefcase that was handcuffed to the president's wrist 
which, you know, generally I would say that's probably something that should be fairly sturdy because if it could just be a regular old leather briefcase that falls apart pretty easy, what's the point? And yet it's just a regular old leather briefcase that falls apart. When shot. Well, yeah. Well, maybe, uh, I don't know. But still, uh, I mean, you would think that something like that, that needs that kind of protection would be would a little bit harder for it to briefcase. open. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, with a combination lock that nobody can break and a titanium shell or something. Well, even if it just looks like a leather briefcase, if it was like a metal interior or something, something so it doesn't look suspicious or there, it's not a conspicuous briefcase, but it really is like the beast doesn't look like the armored kick ass vehicle that it is, but the president's vehicle is armored and it looks like a limo. Yeah, it looks like a limo, but it's like it seals up to where even like gas and attacks and all that, we still don't get in. But it right. doesn't look anything special. So the briefcase, you would think, would kind of be along those same lines, and yet one shot and it just falls open. Well, as we've mentioned, well, I don't think we've mentioned it, but uh, why did what was the point of putting the scope on the Uzi? Because it looked cool. Well, right then. Yeah. What is the That's point? That's what of, I asked. Uh, why put a scope on an Uzi? What's the point of the briefcase falling open? Plot point. So the story yeah. can move forward. That's all it is. It, But it's one of those plot points. It's like, it just, it, it, it's like, really? It's that yeah. easy? It, it, it was a little Where contrived. at any point, it, it, they could have just tried to yank it off his wrist and it would have fallen off. Yeah. They could have opened that briefcase at any time and no yeah. one was curious. Yeah. Was like, and they had yeah. him chained up. So it's not like they couldn't have gotten it. It could have been that he was seen as kind of a package and that nobody was supposed to tamper with the briefcase until the Duke could arrange some private time with the president. Now, and that's what we're seeing here is the Duke finally getting his private time with the president. And that's when he shoots open the briefcase. Well, it's when he's sitting doing the target practice thing. Exactly. And so everybody's like maybe, there. So it's not really private time. It's everybody else is there. Yeah. But before the Duke had uh, the president hidden on a train so that, you know, Hawk and prison guards couldn't come in and rescue him. Or well, something. Yeah. But you would think when he had him in prison on the train, he would have looked then. It's like, okay, well, what's this? I don't think the Duke had. I, I don't think the Duke had personally seen the president. If they had him, if they had him enough where they could cut his finger off, they definitely could have looked at a briefcase. Probably. But I think the Duke was saving that for a special occasion, which was found when he was using the president for target practice. If that, if I had to justify, I can't justify the fact that the, that the briefcase is just a flimsy briefcase. But I, I, I can make up a reason for why the briefcase wasn't open. It was just a convenient plot device timing thing. That's yeah. that's the only reason I could see because it makes no sense why they wouldn't have looked in the briefcase earlier. Unless I like I said, like nobody wanted to tamper with the Duke's property until the Duke himself opened the briefcase. Well, yeah, but the Duke could that's what I'm saying, the Duke could have done it. We don't know that. The Duke like may I don't think the Duke personally kidnapped the president. I don't so think just he the was Duke's there. guys had him and had him locked up somewhere the Duke said, Yeah, keep him over here and that was this was the first time that the Duke had really faced the president. Maybe. Oh. I don't know either. Like I said, it's all conjecture at this point, just making shit up. But why would they have cut the finger off? To show the hawk when they came down. Well, yeah, but even then, it's like, okay, well, that maybe why that not maybe... show that, okay, you know, here's a page that came out of the briefcase or something. Just some kind of proof other than actual physical harm first. All right, here's my, here's my best guess. Duke was not the one on the scene when the plane crashed, but Romero was. 
So Romero was able to capture the president, and Romero is one of the Duke's men. It was probably Romero's idea to bite off the president's finger and use that for when the choppers came. So you think it was bit off, not cut off? Maybe. At that point, Romero and whatever squad of Duke men that he had with him would have either received or orders or improvised to hide the president somewhere secure, at least until the Duke could be contacted and then make up a permanent situation with the train or a semi-permanent situation. Possibly. But at no point, I think, would it have been a good idea for Romero or any of the guards to tamper with the briefcase. I would say it wouldn't made sense to tamper with the president either. If it's like, okay, if this this guy belongs to the Duke, okay, well, leave him intact until the Duke says, okay, go ahead and do this. Well, the Duke's a little crazy, and so is oh, Romero. Yeah. I mean, everybody is a little crazy. Yeah, but Snake is still groggy. And so Brain and Maggie go back to the library to get the diagram for Duke. And Brain is using his brain, and he figures out where Snake landed his glider. It's got to be on top of the World Trade Center, Maggie. I figured it out because Brain's a smarty pants. So now, well, and Maine, it's not just like he was suddenly. Oh yeah, I think I know where it is. Or I mean, he there was some there there was a scene where he's like trying to figure it out. So yeah, and the way he does it, it it's logical. It's it not just weird illogical it's like he, leaps. It's like he, at no point do you think he has telepathy or any shit like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean everything just, he, that he's saying makes sense. Yeah, he figures it out on screen as we watch. Yeah. But now Brain and Maggie don't need Snake. They just need the president, and they can get out on their own. That is when Snake wakes up and is escorted to an arena where he is to be killed by the Duke's biggest thug, Slag. A seven-plus-foot wrestler. Named Ox Baker. And he looks great as this huge monster of a man Snake is, has to take oh, on yeah. to live. Yeah. I mean, he's huge. The Duke says that when they all ride out, they'll have the president as a shield and snake. The top man they sent, well, they'll have his head on a pike. Duke doesn't care what the brain said. He wants snake dead. And dead snake soon may be. He gets in the ring with slag, given a club, and fights. A bunch of prisoners leave the president's broken briefcase in Central Park and flag down a chopper to find it. The chopper brings it back to Hawk and the Secretary of State, and it has Snake's night vision goggles in it, and the Secretary thinks that Snake's is dead, and the mission is a failure. He well, everyone thinks Hawk Snake to, is dead. Everyone thinks Snake is dead, yes. He orders Hawk to ready the choppers. Brain is knocking on the door, and Romero answers, and they're in part of the building where Snake is fighting. It looks like it's like a Grand Central Station kind of place. Romero has the president stashed in some office area of Grand Central Station. Now, Brain knocks on the door and Romero answers. I love Romero. He's so cool. And he's just like, what do you want, Brain? He's like, oh, we're here to see the president. Well, he can't. <laughs> it's just like, he, there's something snarky about Romero. Romero is wearing Cabby's hat now for some reason. It's like, you know, like... Uh, yeah, he traded it. Yeah, he traded it somehow. Yeah, but Brain, Brain conjures, asked him where he got it, and he said that he traded it. He got it from Cabby. It's like... Well, he didn't say what? he got it from Cabby. He just said he traded it. And it's like, well, traded who? And nothing was said. But you know, because there's only Cabby's been one hat. person with that hat. Yeah. Uh, but Brain cons his way in. And that's something about Romero I love. It's just that he's... He looks so insane, but he act, he's actually just very casual and normal in a way. Yeah, just another dude. What do you want, Brain? What's going on? Okay, fine. You want to come in? Fine. And I feel sorry for Romero being tricked here because Brain cons his way in and says the president might have cyanide capsules hidden in his suit and Brain needs to search him. 
And I feel like Romero shouldn't have fell for this. If Brain knew about the Prez having cyanide capsules, why did he keep, keep it to himself up till now? And finally, Romero even figures out, he says, Brain, you're full of shit. You're not supposed to be here. And Isn't that's this when, Brain... when we see Donald Pleasance in the blonde wig? Yes, it is. Apparently, the, apparently Romero was, was having Donald fun. Donald Pleasance's idea. It, uh, good for Donald Pleasance. Yeah. He, for some reason, he just decided to have a wig on. It was just an improvised, okay, put this on. John Carpenter loves Donald Pleasance, and yeah. Donald Pleasance loved working with John Carpenter. Donald Pleasance would always test him. It's like, so why should I do this? Why should I do this movie? I would always like, you convince me. Why should I do this? I heard an interview with Donald Pleasance where uh, he said one of the things he loved about John Carpenter was that John Carpenter never gave him the same role twice. Like he, he would say, Donald, I need you to movie. Oh, all right, John, what am I playing? You're playing uh, a psychiatrist whose patient has gone mad. Oh, all right. And he's like, Donald, I need you to movie. Oh, what am I playing? You're playing the president of the United States. Well, he, <laughs> he wanted Donald for this because he thought he would bring a sense of comedy to the role. And Donald Pleasance was worried about the whole accent thing because you got to be U.S. born and all that. And he had this whole backstory built up that he wanted to have in there about because of all the, the weird shit that's happened, they've, they've redid the rules. And now you don't have to be born in the U.S. And uh, Carpenter's like, oh, it's great and all, but I think it's just too much. We'll just ignore it. Just forget about it. We don't need to explain all that. But at the same time, it was always supposed to be, at least as far as how the character acts and everything, it, it was um, basically he was like the love child of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And that was the explanation for, for his accent. That makes that makes sense, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a weird... I, I, would think, I would think Nixon would be in that uh, genealogy a little bit, considering the movie was inspired somehow by Watergate in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it was written in, what, 74, I think it was? Something like that. But, yeah, this as far as this character and Donald Pleasance and the accent and everything, the love ah. child of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Ah. And it's... Just listening to uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill in an interview they gave, and I, it might be on a special features, I don't know, because again, I haven't been able to get on the special features, but just talking about the movie and why they decided to do certain things and talking about setting everything up and, and all that, that was, yeah, it was love child of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, so that explains the accent. Yeah, it does. Sort of uh, puts the movie in perspective for me a little bit, because uh, John Carpenter is a interesting political character. But I feel sorry for Romero being tricked, like I said, and uh, he figures out that Brain is lying to him a minute too late, and Brain stabs Romero in the guts in a, in a manner that would probably not kill a person in real life, but because this is a movie, Romero dies. And he, he dies like looking down at the stab wound, going, ah, like, like, kind of like it hurt his feelings. It's kind of funny. But that's like my least favorite part of the movie when Romero dies. But Maggie yeah, takes I hate when it's like, oh, just a knife in the gut and they're dead right away. Yeah. That's I mean, granted, if you works. hit the right thing, it's not well, going to be long. But for so many movies, it's like, oh, yeah, stab in the gut. Okay, they're dead. Yeah. In real life, as investigators will tell you, it takes work and time to stab a person to death, and it's not easy. Or a lucky shot, or a lot of training. There are, there are lots of stories of people surviving hundreds of stab wounds oh, yeah. because because they the, the people stabbing them didn't know what they were doing or just gave up. And the person, like I, I read a story about a guy dead. who walked into a hospital emergency room with 300 stab wounds and just and said, Help. And was... <laughs> 
help. Yes. This person had been attacked by three men, and uh, they had stabbed him repeatedly for a long time, and they still didn't kill him. You know how tiring that would be? Imagine just, okay, you figure 300 stab wounds, three guys. Let's just say it's 100 each. Just the motion of stabbing somebody a hundred times. Yes, that would be a lot. It would get tiring. Probably hurt your shoulder, too. Yeah. But Maggie takes out Romero's goons in three quick shots, and voila, Brain and Maggie have the president. And Snake has his hands full, meanwhile, with slag. They're swiping at each other with clubs and shields made from trash can lids. He gets slag on his knees, brings a spiked club into the back of his the big guy's head, and just like that, he wins the fight. And the Kinda place like... erup- erupts with chants of Snake. Yeah, it's kind of like Snake was just playing around with the guy until he could get the shot in. Well, I don't know if I'd say he was just playing around with him. I think it was more he was trying to avoid the giant that was trying to kill him. Yeah. And he needed to just bide his time until he had a shot. But as soon as he had that shot, oh, he fight took over. It. And it was just, it was, it's, it's a very sudden end to the fight in a lot of ways. Oh, I, I mean, I, it's I, a baseball bat with spikes coming out of it going right into the back of the man's skull. So, yeah, I would say it would be quick. Yeah, but it, it's uh, the way it was shot, especially. It, uh, like, they could have made the choice that Snake had to beat the guy repeatedly or something like that. But no, they chose to end it with one shot. Well, I, I think, too. It was kind of a tough thing because just the man being so big, you could only go for so long before one of your characters is going to be tired and before it becomes, okay, yeah, eventually one of these guys is going to take a swing and it's going to be over. We can't just drag this out for too long. And I think probably Kurt Russell was probably getting tired of getting hit because there was a nice little story about he was getting hit a little too hard and it's like, yeah, you need to stop and gave the dude a little tap in the crotch to get him to stop yeah i would not like to spend all day in a wrestling ring with a professional wrestler named ox baker who uh is swinging at me with a rubber club that is that would not be a pleasurable day for me in any circumstances the duke looks concerned that snake has won but then all hell breaks loose the duke finds out the president is missing paul romero is dead and that brain and maggie are to blame the duke's forces mobilize in the commotion snake spots his radar tracker bracelet on one of the duke's men he snatches it and activates it so hawk knows he is still alive in manhattan which is good because hawk was about to launch choppers for a full scale invasion snake hightails it to the world trade center oh wait he also had the the timer bracelet with his countdown till he dies that was on slag's wrist so he takes that yep so now we know how, what's left in our countdown i should have written down all the times but he doesn't have much time left no. i think he has like five hours yeah it's not long it's not long at all because he lost a lot of time after passed the Duke out. knocked him out and yeah. he was passed out. He has to hightail it for the World Trade Center mm-hmm. to cut off Brain from escaping with the president in the glider. Yep. But it turns out no one is getting the glider because a gang of guys dressed up like Native Americans has claimed it and are in the process of destroying it. Stake Maggie in the prez head back down. This is another thing about the time. He's got the timer, as we were just talking about, mm-hmm. and... He gets to the World Trade Center and has to walk up 50 Mm -hmm. flights of stairs. And this is what I was talking about. And then he has to get up in the elevator. And it's by the time he gets up there, I believe it's nighttime. Well, not only that, but okay. So he hot wires the elevator so he can go down when he got there. Did he disable it or was the elevator still working the entire time? I think it was still working. So that means that he knew the elevator worked. 
but did anyone else? I think some so, people found out, and that's why the glider got destroyed. Well, e- either they found out, and that's why it got destroyed, or they saw it hanging off the side of the building. No one looks up in New York. But either way, you had to go 50 flights on foot and then turn around and go back down. And Donald Pleasance is not young and not in shape. No. And yet when they get back down, he doesn't seem out of breath. I mean, they do kind of stop a little bit when they get down there, like, holy shit, what's going on? But it's not a, wait, I need to catch my breath stop. It's, I need to figure out what's going on next. It's like more of a regroup than... By by all accounts, everybody should be a little worn out after walking oh, yeah. up 50 flights of steps, Twice. getting in an elevator, <laughs> and then coming back and walking back down 50 flights of steps. Yeah. Snake should be a little worn out, but... And it should have taken a lot longer. I could assume sliding down a lot of banisters happened. Can you imagine Donald Pleasant sliding down 50 flights worth of banisters? No. No, I can't. It's easier okay, to so go now down I'm, than I'm, it... I got a mental picture of him doing it, and I, I I was thinking of you know you see on TV where they lay on their stomach and backwards or slide down backwards uh-huh. down the banister. So I got a picture of Donald Pleasant sliding down and then turn and go and just going. And so I had that mental picture, and then I remembered who all else was there, and I got a mental picture of Adrian Barbeau doing that. Okay, well now you're enjoying yourself, and that changed. It's like, okay, you know, maybe they should have filmed that. Anyway, I think we've made it clear that by the time Snake gets back down from the bottom of the, to the bottom of the World Trade Center, he has lost a lot of time. Oh, yeah. He, I was think he out. probably, according to his countdown, has lost way less time than he should have. Yes. But he's lost a lot of time. They need what is in the president's briefcase. That is the tape. Brain knows where it is, or he says he does. Still, all those stairs eat up time. It's dark by the time he gets back to the street, and the Duke is waiting in the lobby, having disabled Brain's car. Snake does not have time to deal with the Duke, so he shoots a steam pipe, and where is there still working a steam boiler in the World Trade Center? I'd like to... That's a question I'd like to ask. I thought it was the engine from the car. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, because they were talking about they converted everything over to steam, and the car was disabled. I thought they just took the steam engine out of the car. Makes sense. Yeah, thank you. They make their escape out of the World Trade Center, and they run outside and find... What do they find outside the World Trade Center conveniently waiting for them? A yellow cab with a driver named Cabby. They all pile in. Snake takes the wheel, and they hightail it to the bridge. Snake is running out of time. The Hartford Summit ends soon, and when it does, Snake dies. Without the glider, his only hope is to get across the bridge in one piece. Cabby has a tape player in his car and a lot of cassettes. Snake finds the president's tape among them. Brain has this moment like, Aha! I knew it was here! Romero traded you the tape for your hat, didn't he? Because Brain is a smarty pants. Yeah, because Brain knows there's only one person with that hat in Manhattan. Just like we know there's only one person with that hat in Manhattan. Yes, because Brain is a smarty pants, but isn't it nice that the crew is all back together and now they have the president? It's like mission accomplished. They left, they walked out of that library with a plan and here they are all back together and they made that plan happen. Snake is driving though and he's pushing the cab too hard, according to Yeah, Cabby. just a bit. A little bit. He is he's going full throttle on this bridge that has mines on it. Brain tells him to stay left and jog right. I don't know what the hell jog right means while driving. You uh, you go a little bit to the right. You don't go all the way to the right. It's just a little to the right. Okay. Oh, I'd never heard that term. Apparently, Snake didn't jog correctly because he runs over a mine and blows up the cab. And Cabby dies. He blows it in half. Yeah, he blows it perfectly in yeah. half. And... <laughs> 
amazingly he, enough, just slices he, it the front and back apart. Cabby dies, and it's sad, because he was like the only character in the movie who ever seemed happy, and he's the first to die. Yeah. I guess. And we don't get we don't get any more of Ernest Borgnine's joyous performance as this gleeful silly man. And we instead we just see Ernest Borgnine's face covered in blood lying there dead in his car, in yeah. his own car by the way. So, it's sad. At least he died in his own car. Yeah, that was small small blessings. He um, went out with a cab. Hawk and Reming order a guy named Cronenberg uh, to get to the end of the bridge with a winch. Now it's Snake, Maggie, Brain, and the Prez. They're running. Brain is directing them. Duke's running or driving after him. Yeah, the Duke's on his way after him with in his in his chandelier car. Yeah, and fast, and not caring one bit about mines. Brain is directing the people running, and they aren't listening. He says, "Go left." They go right. Brain goes left, and he steps on a mine. Kablooey. He's dead. Yep. Maggie stares, looking pretty upset. Snake tells her to come on. Uh, but the Duke is coming after them in his car. Maggie stays to kill the Duke. Maybe she loved Brain. Maybe she cared for him. They seemed like pretty equal partners. Cabby said she was Brain's squeeze. Maybe she hated the Duke more than she loved Brain, though, because she stays to kill the Duke and gets run down. Interestingly enough, this is where J.J. Abrams, as a child, made a contribution to this film. Apparently, J.J. Abrams, as a child, was watching the sneak preview of this film during one of the Deborah Hill screenings that they had, and he made the suggestion that there should be a shot of Maggie under the Duke's car, bloody and dead, because otherwise... They left it ambiguous. They, they, didn't, have, they didn't have a shot of her dead. So they, it was a little ambiguous and it's like, well, what's going on? So since they had already filmed everything, they went to her house and filmed that in her driveway. And it works well. I believed it. Yeah, it looked good. Yeah. But then Except again, the anytime that... she's on screen in this movie, it looks good. No. No. Dead bodies aren't dead bodies aren't sexy. I didn't say she was sexy. All right. I just said it, every shot she's in looks good. Well, the camera loves her. Yeah. And to be honest, the first time, few times I watched this, granted it was years and years ago. So like, I mean, we're talking, I was probably 12 or 13 at the time that I remember seeing this. And I didn't remember the brain blowing up because I was too busy watching her run across the bridge in that low cut dress. You filthy minded little scab. I mean, you awful, I, I, like I said, child. Adrian Barbeau was everything you should be ashamed to of your, adolescent you should, boys for years. You should write a letter to Miss Barbeau apologizing for your very existence. Uh, I think she'd probably be like, yeah, understandable. <laughs> I mean, judging by some of the things she has said about the different roles she's had and different things that have been said to her and just about her own appearance and everything, she'd probably be like, yeah, okay, I get it. Well, she's aware of her image. Well, yeah, I would hope so. Um, yeah, I, I assume she was aware of it and comfortable with it. And I would hope so. I would hope so as well. But anyway. Snake and the Prez make it to the wall, but the Duke is in hot pursuit, and the Duke still has Snake's gun. And the President is being winched up, and the Duke tries to shoot the guys doing the winching. He still wants the President alive, I think, at that point. I don't know if I'd say he tries to shoot the guys so much as he shot the guys. Okay, yeah, basically. Yeah, he, he shoots them. But the Prez makes it over the wall, leaving Snake down there with the Duke. Snake gets the drop on him, and they fight, wrestling over the gun. Snake gets the gun and makes it to the winch and is being lifted up when he stops midair. The President is up on top of the wall and, and shouts down at the, the Duke. Turned off the winch, and he says, the President shouts, You're the Duke of New York! You're a number one! You're the Duke of New York! And he blows the Duke away. 
And he's yep. laughing while he does it. Maniacal laughter as he kills the Duke. Yeah. And then he turns Snake's winch back on and Snake climbs over the wall. And voila, he has escaped from New York. But his troubles aren't over yet. Snake wants the x-rays to kill the bombs immediately. Well, yeah. He's got bombs in his neck. Yeah, he I would minutes, want them out right away. minutes, if not seconds, to spare. Oh, not minutes. Uh, yeah, it, it is close. Oh, yeah. As soon as he as soon as he walks toward the treatment to, to get the next rays, Hawk gets between get him the and the doctor. And so, yes, that's how they they neutralize the target with X rays. With, with X rays. Okay. Oh, yeah. I you, said, you said next rays. Yes. Oh well, excuse <laughs> me. Yeah. He he walked towards towards him to get the next rays. Well, which I'm sorry, I mean, X rays on his neck. Yeah. Excuse me. I, well, no, I, I, it's. It's you're turning into me, which is making words up and make instead of names or whatever. Next race, it makes sense. X rays in your neck, it's next race. Yes. Well, Hawk immediately gets between Snake and the doctor and says, Where's the tape, Pliskin? At which point, Snake has to hand over the tape he got out of Cabby's cap and yeah, he uh, hands, he, him a, hands him the cassette and he gets the, the next race. And finally, and Hawk just looks at it and, and steps aside and he gets the x-rays. It's just like you're watching. You're like, damn, this guy Hawk is a hard ass. Jeez. It's like after all he just went through, Hawk is there with the fucking fine print. He finally, well, he, he doesn't the, care if, if no, they go off. Yeah, the head blows up, but it's not like he's holding the tape in his head. You can still search the body. Yeah. Snake doesn't kill the guy who gave him the x-rays, which is nice because, you know, even, he though, he implanted the, even though he implanted the bombs earlier, he, he was not happy doing it. Yeah, he, he wasn't happy doing it. He made Hawk tell him what was going on, and he was trying to to give him the next raise to fix it when Hawk stopped him. So the whole time, the guy's not doing this of his own volition, and he's trying to help him. So yeah, yeah, let him live. But a kind of peace settles over things. The president has been rescued and is getting shaved and having makeup put on so we can attend the Hartford Summit via video link. Snake goes up and asks him, a lot of people died back there to get you out. What do you think about that? I'm paraphrasing. And the president answers wrong. Yeah. president clearly he does not give the much test. of a shit. He, he thanks Snake for getting him out and says, well, I would like to thank them too. Excuse me. I, I have a very important blah, 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 blah. Snake walks away. And he, even even Tom Atkins as Remy looks a little pissed at the president's aloofness. Because he, he was standing there with Snake while Snake talked to the president and it was like, we went through all this to get him back, and that's all he has to say? Anyway. I thought it was more like he would just kind of didn't want Snake there. Because wasn't Possibly. he trying to stop Snake from going up to the president to begin with? And the president is like, oh, no, it's okay. I don't recall. Because I remember he he went over to him, and someone tried to stop him. And the president's like, oh, no, it's okay. Go, let him. So then he went up and asked a question. But anyway, uh, well, you know what? I've learned that I am not that good at taking notes because sometimes I get so focused on the notes that I stop paying attention to what I'm supposed to be taking notes to. And on the flip side of that, I generally don't take notes. Yeah. Anyway, Hawk offers Snake a job. Snake says, call me Pliskin because they're not friends. Earlier in the movie, Snake told him, when this is over, I'm going to kill you. So now Hawk's like, so are you going to kill me now? And he's like, no, nah, I'm too tired. Yeah. And then he said, well, I, you want a job or I got a job for you or whatever. We can make a great team just like the old days. And Snake's like, oh, fuck off. Yeah. And the president, as the movie has movie has worked so hard to get him to where he is right now, the president goes live to the Hartford Summit and plays the tape Snake gave them. Now, when Snake played it in the car, we got a snatch of a scientist talking about cold fusion. Apparently, America has perfected cold fusion and... And it's in a scientist snatch. Oh, I, I reworded what you said a little wrong, didn't yeah, I? You, yeah, you did. 
You sure did. It, it's amazing how just changing the order of words really yeah, changes the, so the meaning cute. of the sentence, huh? Um, <laughs> we get a, gr- I, I believe snatch was the correct word to use in that sentence, but either way. A snippet. A, a snippet. We get a snippet a of sample. science talk. <laughs> where apparently America has discovered cold fusion. Part of the summit is that the president is going to share America's discovery with Russia and China and bring about world peace. This is the thing that everything has been built to. This is what Snake put his life at risk for. What, or I'm sorry, what Snake's life was put at risk for. Maggie, Brain, Cabby, Romero, the Duke. A lot of people died for this. All of them died so that the president could make this announcement. And the president puts in the tape to play the secret of cold fusion for Russia and China. And and instead, it's big, American bandstand. It's Yes, instead it's big band music from Cabby's tape player. American bandstand. And the president is... Great song. Is, the president is left there looking like a complete fool in front of the entire world. And Snake... Walks away pulling the tape out of the cassette. Like many people nowadays would not ever know to do because they wouldn't even know what the hell a cassette is. He's yanking out the magnetic tape as he walks away, away from all this. And tearing it as he's doing it, not just pulling it out, because just pulling it out, you can fix that with a pencil. Yeah. He tears it up, throws it away, and that he just walks off with his pardon, and that is the end of the movie. Yep. That is it. Credits roll, music plays, then screen goes black, and that's it. (laughs) We get all the cast members. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we got through the movie. Yep. I mean, what, what else is there to talk about from, with Escape from New York? Oh, what'd you think of it? Well, I, I think Escape from New York is a fun little movie. Uh, I think it has some political undertones that are worth exploring. I think Snake Plissken is a fun character, uh, even though he's not exactly a likable protagonist. He's definitely an anti-hero. Yes, he is. I think we could um, discuss Snake um, in regards to pop culture things uh you can do uh, essays just on snake i mean there's so many different roads you can travel down on just different aspects of personality or whatever there's a lot of things you could do just for that one character we didn't talk much about donald pleasance because uh i i think that donald pleasance sort of goes hand in hand with john carpenter for me in a lot of ways donald pleasance is uh sadly I, i can't say when donald pleasance died it was a while ago it was a while ago. It was in the 90s, it 1995. Was during Halloween, or right after they, well, not right after they finished filming, because they had to go back and shoot more stuff, and Pleasance had already died. But it was Halloween 6, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen... Uh, I know, it was, it was the last part of the Thorn trilogy. Yeah, and uh, I actually have that on a, I actually bought a special Blu-ray of that called The Producer's Cut, which I've never watched yet. Supposedly, The Producer's Cut it's is... It's a lot different. Yeah. Like uh, some people say it's better. Yeah. I don't, I've never seen it. Though. I think overall it's better. There's times when it's like, well, you know, if you would have kept this scene in, but left this one, it's like, if you would have mixed them, it could have been even better, but you know, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's another one of those where the studios got too involved and just ruined the movie. But then again, the whole Thorn trilogy thing was it's messed up to begin with. And then when they didn't bring Daniel Harris back for that one, it's like, really? Who else is going to be Jamie? No, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but anyway. As for Escape from New York, uh, I think it's it's remembered fondly uh, by a mm. lot of people. Yeah, I was to say, it's remembered fondly, but not by critics. 
and not by the people that really matter in the film world. It's more uh, by the cult following rather than anything else, I think. I've heard uh, John Carpenter like is huge in France and like Escape from New York is big in France. That wouldn't surprise me. And like, I know uh, Plissken like, is one of Kurt Russell's favorite roles he's ever done. It's his, the, the very favorite role he's ever done. Yeah. From what I've heard. Yeah, and that's they they were talking about doing a remake and they were gonna talk they were trying to get his son to do it and his son's like, No, that's career suicide. <laughs> no, I you I can't replace him. Who, who you you can't replace Snake. And no. then there a thing came out talking about uh gonna be a great year for Kurt Russell and there was a picture of him dressed as Snake and something about the thing so it's like great we're gonna have another escape from someplace which might finally be escape from mars which we were supposed to get years ago and a sequel to the thing i really don't see where the thing has much to go with the sequel i mean it, it was just two guys at the end of the movie and which we've already decided we're not going to talk about that until we cover it because the stories and theories we can come up with talk about a movie that wasn't beloved by critics oh yeah and they tore thing apart but it benchmark for practical effects yeah what would you change about escape from new york if you had to change something well i a few things actually i i think this movie suffers from a little problem of one-dimensional characters because even when cabbie dies it's like oh yeah that sucks but you don't really get much of any of the characters you don't really it's like it's hard to really feel anything nobody gives you a sense of desire of the, oh i want this one to stay alive other than you want snake to stay alive just because snake's the badass hero i didn't really care that much about snake to be honest i mean snake is such a dark gritty kind of uh loner that it, it's like i kind of wonder sometimes like why does he even care if he lives or dies yeah. it's like what is what what does he have to live for is he gonna is, is he is he gonna go out there and you know raise a family is he is he gonna go out there and Help See, feed the children or something. This movie, I it, it's a fun movie. I like it. Don't get me wrong. I I would watch it anytime it was on. But it's one of those movies, kind of like like the Wretched, where it's like it's got lots of great concepts. It, it just doesn't have the character development. I think it had better character development than the Wretched. I I think you're being a little too hard on the Wretched, but it did it did have better char- character development than that. Yes. But it just didn't it didn't have much. All the characters really were one dimensional to really say what I would change. I would have had a scene with Snake and the Duke. You needed you an had- oomph scene. You needed some big conflict scene between those two. The the Duke and Snake, the whole movie are trying to get to each other. Well, Snake's trying to get to the Duke, but there's this, he is this big, larger than life, and Snake's trying to get to him. And then when he does, you get a little bit of a conversation, and then there's a little fight at the end. But to have, even if it's just an exposition thing, when he's first captured, just have something between Snake and the Duke to just give a little bit more tension between those two. Maybe like a scene where the Duke is questioning Snake while he's tied up or something. Yeah, just something. But it's like there's really no conflict between the two of them until the end when they're fighting. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Uh, if you were uh, if you were trapped in New York, what would you do? I probably would die. I wouldn't survive that shit. You wouldn't. You wouldn't figure out something. I mean, look, I'm not MacGyver. You, you don't <laughs> have to be MacGyver. Or, okay, look. No, I might no. try and find some place where I can just hide. New York is a dangerous place, but look, I mean, guys like Cabby survived, and guys, uh, and they had yeah because he had something that people wanted can you play an instrument nope 
Okay. Well, then, I, I mean, can you put on a dress and, and dance in a musical? Nope. Okay, well, you have some faith in yourself, man. Uh, I can't dance and I can't sing. Well, I, I could put on a dress, but they're going to want me to do more than just that. I, so I'm not going to put on a dress for any other reason. <laughs> it's like if I was going to get up on the stage and sing and dance, okay. But if a bunch of guys are like, yeah, put this dress on, no, because I don't want to know what you plan on doing to me after I get it on. Yeah, that is a fair assessment. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the people, uh, I would assume there is a day-to-day -day life in the, in the New York prison that is livable. I mean, it, it can't all just be violence and death. It looked pretty much like that's all it was. I don't think it was. I mean, I mean, uh, th there are groups of people who get along. Uh, there are, uh, like, and it, and it looked to me like if you get inside one of those groups and you are able to maintain respect with different me with various members of that, those groups, oh, yeah. you can probably survive. But it was constant gang wars. It's like, yeah, if you're in with that group, uh, but you're also having to worry about some other group coming at you. So, yeah, I, yeah, well, I doubt I would last long. Yeah, I probably wouldn't either. I'm an, I'm an okay shot, but they don't have guns very much. Well, you know, that's why you put a, a scope on a newsie. Yeah, but they all so, use crossbows and such. What would you change? Um, Get rid of Adrian Barbo's dress? No. Oh. Well, um, you know, I wouldn't say no to that. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't, I can't really think of anything I would change about Escape from New York. I, it, and really? It's not just, it's not just respect for the movie. It's really just, I, I think the movie has the right balance of all the parts that it has. It, it's, I mean, you made some good points about, you know, maybe having some more direct conflict between Snake and the Duke, but one could argue that, you know, it the movie works the way it is because Snake and the Duke aren't really, they don't have any personal beef with one another. It's all business between them. Snake needs the president. Duke wants the president. That's all that really holds them together. The Duke doesn't have any personal interest or beef with Snake Plissken. So I mean, you wouldn't even, like, I don't know, make that briefcase not fall apart so easy? Well, that's just a goof. Or put a seatbelt in the escape pod? These are all things you pointed out already. Logical right. things. I mean, all right, uh, maybe I'm I would I'm just trying have hired, to think of if there, if, is there anything? Maybe I would have hired uh, concept artists to come up with uh, futuristic-looking uh, weapons and devices and vehicles, but I don't think they had the budget for that. Now, if uh, everything that you can make to try to look futuristic immediately ages badly, for crying out loud, uh, they, they were predicting that like, in 1997 we'd still be using cassette tapes. CDs were popular all throughout the 90s. Uh, well, I don't I know mean, if they if were, were predicting that they would still be used so much as saying that they are on this island and they don't have this new technology coming in they're stuck with what there is and that's kind of what there was once that um, you didn't have a lot of cars with cd players especially in like older cabs no well that's neither here nor there the president was transmitting top secret information on a cassette tape i mean it, the, yeah. they the, the government would definitely have access to higher levels of technology. So, I mean, okay, think of it like this. Uh, when RoboCop came out in 1987, they predicted uh, in 1997, I'm sorry, RoboCop came out in 1987. It took place in 1997. Uh, it predicted cyborgs and uh, Ed 209s walking around. Yeah, I, but look at the weaponry. That did age well. What, the M16s? His gun, his handgun, and that big-ass freaking cannon that he yeah, ends the, up with the at the end. sniper rifle thing yeah. he, he uses to take out the Ed 209. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Uh, maybe if maybe if Phil Tippett could have been involved in Escape from New York, they would have had uh, a little bit more 
sci-fi bona fides uh, that, um, you know, like somebody could have designed better weapons that looked better for the era. Well, I think one of the things that hurts that too is like, look at the original Star Trek. Which, I mean, yeah, you can say that a lot of the things in that were inspired, like Forbidden Planet and from other things. But looking at the original Star Trek, look at the technology that came out because it was inspired by that movie. Like cell phones. Yeah, were inspired by Star Trek. So if you look at the technology of that, it's like, oh, yeah, here's all this great future technology. But then look at what we have. And it's like, well, if that far in the future, that didn't that, that, that didn't age well at all. But it's because that set up a, a new goal for us. It's like, well, we need to get that. So then now all of a sudden we have made the future technology from the movie obsolete because the movie gave us the idea of even better technology. Be that as it may, I, I just think it would have been cool to see like uh, maybe like some people in New York having like uh, cyborg parts or maybe like the cops having Ed 209 walkers to uh, move around in. Like, in this uh, movie or Robocop? Yes, in this, mo- in this movie. So in this movie, have Ed 209s. Well, no, just like chicken walker type vehicles. If maybe there was cops patrolling it or something, but this was no, just like show them show them at the Liberty uh, at the Liberty Island base. Why? Just to show the cool stuff that the cops have. There's no need for it there. Well, there's no need to show tons of choppers like they have. Okay, well, they got to fly them in and out. Yeah. No, I it, I don't know that you asked what I would change. I would say you know some decent future effects. Okay, like what it was is a lot of the stuff that they had was improvised, and it was uh, like you know they just found a weird looking bus for Snake to drive in on. They just found a weird looking limo for Lee Van Cleef to drive in on. So I would have given the movie a bigger budget maybe, and to let John yeah it had to let like the five million production designers to really get it going yeah john carpenter said that five million and they used almost they used pretty much every penny and it, the, the movie was asking for more it's, it's he said it was just so hard to do on such a low budget the, the movie was a little bit more ambitious than the budget would allow but it, it i think it, it still holds up as a kind of dystopian sci-fi notion of uh 20th century yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it's it's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. It 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 makes some scary points about like possible futures. Yeah, and uh, it uh, gave us Snake Plissken, and it, it gave us a lot of fun characters. Like uh, for me, there were a, a few times during the movie uh, synopsis. There, I, I talked about how like the gang is all together. Like uh, when Cabby and Maggie and Snake and Brain are walking out of the library. Like I, I kind of get this feeling like uh, okay, the posse's got rounded up and now the story's going to start or something like that and uh that's uh it's a fun feeling for me okay so and then when they when they all get back together with the president at the end it's like ah see yeah there, there's the team they're all they're all together again so scale of one to ten uh i think it's a solid uh seven and a half so not far, well you gave audition an eight or nine i don't remember no that's what you said it was you said eight or nine okay so I don't know if that's like an eight point something, or you haven't, you didn't, couldn't decide between eight or nine. But then again, I said nine or ten, so not a whole lot better. So you gave audition an eight or nine. This is seven point five. So this is that close to audition on your one to ten scale. No, I think of it as. Uh uh, it's hard to compare the two, so I will give you yeah, that. Yeah, it's very hard to compare yeah. the two. And I, I think of this more for historical relevance and for uh, cult value and for uh, just being a huge part of, part of pop culture the way it was for a long time. It's up there as far as you know, 80s action movies go, 80s action sci-fi pictures. 
I, I don't know if I would rate it as high. I mean, like what I said, I like it. I I would probably go more like six. That's very middle of the road. Well, again, I just I don't feel like the the characters are. The characters very... are what they needed to be. Everybody is in a rush in the movie. Yeah, it's like it, it's a movie about it's a it's a very plot centric movie. Everybody mm-hmm. is uh, uh, doing something to reach their goals throughout the movie. There's no time for introspection or development. No, I think it's just there's there's a lot going on, so you don't really get a chance to know these characters. Do you need to know them? I mean, look, uh, they're, it, it, they're painted in pretty broad strokes. I think it's you don't necessarily need to get to know the characters because, like I said, I like the movie, and it's it's a fun movie, and I watch it any time it's on. So it's not that it's a necessary thing, but when you get to know the characters more and you have a, you have more of a connection to the characters, it draws the interest more into the movie. Be that as it may. But you figure, I, like, in, at least in my opinion, there's not a very big depth of character thing. The soundtrack is great, but a lot of the songs feel like they're used wrong. It's like there's certain scenes when it's like, okay, I like the music, but it just doesn't seem to fit the situation. Hmm. And then that I, little I, that little extra oomph in there with with Snake and, and the dude. It's like, I just, like I said, I like it. I just rate it a little lower. Hmm. No, I would, uh, I think what John Carpenter was going for was a kind of, and I use this phrase ad nauseum, I, I'm getting sick of it, but over the top. You do a, use that a lot. I do. But uh, I, I think he was going for more of a gonzo thing, and he wanted the characters to be painted in broad strokes, to introduce them not as maybe specific characters, but more to sp- introduce them as types of characters like uh brain is the sleazy mastermind the duke is uh the duke is a charismatic thug snake is a loner outlaw and uh maggie is the brain's gun mall cavi is comic relief uh yeah it's kind of like you you said okay we're gonna make a movie here's all the characters we're gonna need we need like you said a gun mall we need a comic relief we need this okay there they are action and I think all the actors had fun playing the characters. Probably. Obviously, Kurt Russell did. Yeah. Because he was the driving force behind L.A. Because didn't he write and produce or I, write and direct? He wrote and produced. Yeah. So. Even though it's funny on the special features for L.A., Bruce Campbell talks about how uh, Kurt Russell refuses to ad-lib on set because he is not a writer, even though he did write that movie partially. I, I just thought it was more interesting that they share a stunt double. Do they? Yeah. Hmm. Kurt Russell and Bruce Campbell share a stunt double and had for years and I think still do. I think it's still the same guy. Oh, good for them. I hope the stunt double is uh, doing well. At least I'm pretty sure. Well, the article I was reading said they still do, but I didn't remember to check the date on the article. Hmm. So with the way it could be, who knows, the stunt, the stunt guy could have died by now. I don't know. I hope not. With, with the way actors were keeling over there for a while, it's hard to tell. Mm. A lot of killed over actors in this one. Yeah, that's for sure. And I mean, Kurt Russell and Bruce Campbell aren't the youngest anymore. Um, yeah, I was looking at uh, Adrian Barbeau on uh, IMDb and uh, I think it said she was born in... Um, Long time ago. 1945. Yeah. So, I don't know. Let's just uh, love Adrian Barbeau and I hope uh, we have many years with Adrian Barbeau still in the world. And uh, I'm sure her family and loved ones feel the same way. And, yeah. uh, just, uh, same with Bruce Campbell and Kurt Russell. With Bruce Campbell and Kurt Russell. Uh, with Let's just be very clear to any of our listeners out there. We do not wish death or harm on any actors. And we we love all of the performers in our movies. And we hope they uh, 
are all uh, doing well. I, I did not like it. I did not enjoy the movie The Wretched, but it was not because of uh, bad performances in the movie. I thought it was well acted. I just didn't like the script, and I do not wish harm or ill will on any of the actors involved in the movie The Wretched. So, yeah, get that off my chest. <laughs> but uh, I think the train is coming to a stop. Yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot more. I mean, it's it, it, this is we kind of one of those movies political. that it's like you, you could... You could talk about so many things for so long and not really get that deep into it and always feel like there's more that could be said. And yet, I think th those are all things that would require some people much smarter than us, like no digging way. into could, like political stuff or some of the could, other things. We could, we could parse it out. We could figure things out. Can make shit up. <laughs> yeah, damn it. It might not be anywhere close to accurate, but we could make shit up. I think the movie was a kind of response to high crime in America. Uh, that's, how's that? I think uh, in the late 1970s and 1980s, places like New York were considered as havens of absolutely overwhelming crime. So the idea, part of the conceit of the movie is that they just put up a, a wall around New York and said, here, criminals can have it. Hey, you know, if it worked for Australia, it could work for Manhattan. No. I think a lot of the uh, prisoners in Australia were people who were debtors, who were sent to uh, basically live as slaves in the mines for the empire. I was talking more just like an island prison. but it's a penal colony, yeah. As America, they, yeah, they only send good people to America. There weren't any prisoners in over here. Uh, bull. <laughs> America right, was a prison colony, too. All right, then long as we're clear on that oh yeah i'm i'm not gonna deny it it's not, it's not like i'm one of the ones that did it i'm not a prisoner i'm an indentured servant uh, uh you're basically a prisoner. not a whole lot of difference no prisoner no. indentured servant slave yeah all the same shit it's just so fun to think about too isn't it yeah i, I was just thinking that just really brought the mood down <laughs> but the train is coming to a stop it's time to say goodbye here in the movie car we hope everyone out there in podcast land was able to get a little bit of new appreciation for Escape from New York. Thanks to everyone who listened and downloaded. We love all of you. Thanks to our mutual friend. Please like, subscribe, comment, heart, star, tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies criticize. about us. Or tell your enemies. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell your neighbors. Tell the drunk down the street. Go go up to that go up to that guy you hate and said, you know what? I hate this podcast, but you might like it because I'm different than you and you might like it. Yeah. No, then, go up to him and say, I like this. You might like it too. It might actually have some be something that we have in common so we can not hate each other anymore and start turning things around. Because remember, yeah, that's right. movies have the power to bring people together. So be good to each other out there, people. We're all stuck together in this crazy train and we're all we have in here. Bye for now, folks. Goodbye. Goodbye.